welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Malignancy-associated bone disease is a common complication in the oncology patient realm that warrants supportive care, oftentimes with intravenous bisphosphonates or RANK-L inhibitors. Additionally, safety concerns with osteonecrosis of the jaw and rebound osteolysis with bone remodeling agents requires further consideration in determining optimal bone health regimens. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Christopher Cahoon to compare the efficacy of bisphosphonates and RANKL inhibitors for prevention of metastatic bone disease in breast, prostate, and other solid organ cancers. I wanna set the stage by asking everyone what they think of when they hear a disease that is associated with an increased rate for fractures. I think for most, osteoporosis tends to come to mind and with good reason. With every osteoporosis patient, they have about a 15% chance of having a fracture every year. Compare that to patients with malignancy-related bone disease, however, and the fracture risk can go all the way up to 30% and even higher in some patients. Um, Malignancy-related bone disease does represent a smaller overall fraction of the population, but patients who do develop this disease are at such a high risk for fracture that they warrant further discussion. Objectives today for today are going to start by contextualizing the importance of why we need to optimize bone health in these patients with bone metastases and lytic lesions secondary to a malignancy. To do so, we'll start by uh, discussing the preferred uh, therapy options used in malignancy-related bone disease and talk about some of the safety limitations for the two common classes of agents, the bisphosphonates and the RANK-L inhibitors. And I want to start by mentioning that not all cancers are the same, and so too are their metastases not the same. Not all patients who develop a type of cancer will be at risk for developing bone metastases. The most common cancers that have bone metastases on the solid tumor side are breast and prostate cancer, and the risk is 70% and 85% of patients with advanced disease respectively. Lung cancer and kidney cancer also have high rates of bone metastases with as high as 40% for these two disease states. And on the liquid tumor side, multiple myeloma has about a 95% chance of a patient developing bone disease. Um, And in fact, it's so common in multiple myeloma that it's a diagnostic criterion for these patients. Altogether, about 60,000 persons in the United States will be diagnosed with bone metastases each year. Um, And that's for a city the size of Rochester, about 20 people every single year. And much like not all cancers are going to metastasize to the bone, not all bones are equally likely to be effective. Primarily, involvement of bone disease is going to be located along the axial skeleton. The spine, pelvis, skull, and ribs all have high rates of bone metastases. And when it does extend into the appendicular skeleton, the humerus and femur are most likely to be affected. And when they are effective, affected, the rates are, or the location of the metastases are typically proximal to the axial skeleton still. Not all um, bone metastases are going to present the same either. Osteolytic lesions are characterized by the destruction of bone, and they're most common in breast cancer, multiple myeloma, and non-small cell lung cancer. 
Throughout the presentation, I'll be representing them with a gray amorphous shape on the bone. Osteoblastic lesions are characterized by the deposition or buildup of bone, and they're more common in prostate and small cell lung cancers. They'll be represented with this yellow figure here as a growth on the bone. Mixed uh, classification has both osteolytic and osteoblastic characteristics and can also be seen in breast cancer as well as gastrointestinal cancers. Those will be represented by both of the two figures combined. Interestingly, with bone metastases, we rely very heavily on imaging rather than biopsying, which is more so the case in other types of metastases. Bone radiography, MRI, CT, and PET scans can all be used to diagnose and assess follow-up of patients with bone metastases. Before I get started with therapy and pathophysiology, I think it's important to remind ourselves of the typical physiology of healthy bone remodeling. Osteoclasts promote bone resorption or breakdown and increase circulating serum calcium levels. Osteoblasts promote bone deposition and decrease circulating serum calcium levels by incorporating the calcium back into the bone. While osteoclasts can intuitively seem counterintuitive to help or to the um, healthy bone, it's actually good for the bone to have healthy turnover. And in fact, um, a new skeleton is regrown about once every 10 years. So the upcoming social media posts regarding new year, new me are really only relevant about once a decade. So use it wisely. But now let's talk about what happens when things go wrong. Let's say we have a solid organ tumor metastasis. With time, it will produce inflammatory markers that increase the expression of receptor activator of nuclear factor kappa beta, or RANK, as I'll call it throughout the presentation. RANK is present on osteoclast precursors, and when it binds with its associated ligand, you get promoted osteoclast activation, which will destroy the bone, especially when the osteoblasts are not able to keep up with the amount of osteoclast activation. This lytic lesion will produce growth factors as a way to tell the body to rebuild the bone. But in the case of malignancy, the metastasis can hijack the growth factors to further support its own growth. Multiple myeloma functions similarly, albeit a little bit different. Different inflammatory markers will be expressed, but they still lead to the activation of osteoclasts and bone destruction and resulting growth factors that will really just build up myeloma cell proliferation. Multiple myeloma does rely on another mechanism, however. In healthy cells, osteoprotegrin is produced by osteoblasts as a way of stopping rank L from excessively activating osteoclasts. In multiple myeloma, however, this mechanism is also um, hijacked, where proteins will stop the osteoblasts from their normal functioning and also stop osteoprotegrin from inhibiting osteoclast activation. So you get unregulated activation of osteoclasts. Let's go ahead and start with our first uh, question of the day. So go ahead and respond at polyev.com slash mayorx or text mayorx in all capitals to 22333. The first question is, a patient diagnosed with which of the following malignancies is at the greatest risk for developing osteolytic bone disease? And this is in terms of rates, not in terms of absolute numbers. So if you did have a diagnosis, when are you most likely to have osteolytic bone disease? So it looks like we're getting some responses. And I would agree with the majority here that patients who are diagnosed with multiple myeloma have upwards of a 95% chance of developing osteolytic bone disease. 
In terms of sheer number, breast cancer has the most affected patients in the general population. But if you have a diagnosis of breast cancer, that doesn't necessarily mean you're at a greater risk for developing bone disease compared to multiple myeloma patients. Prostate cancer and non-small cell lung cancer are also associated with bone disease, although not quite to the extent of multiple myeloma or breast cancer. Now let's talk about some of the complications of bone disease and kind of get into why we really need to treat these patients. The two most common complications are going to be pain, which hinders quality of life and warrants additional pharmacotherapy with pain relievers. Fractures are another common complication, and they exacerbate pain and contribute to morbidity with inpatient hospitalizations, as well as mortality in the case of severe major fractures. Spinal cord compression and hypercalcemia are other additional considerations, and they can be treated as oncologic emergencies and have a high, case, high rate of mortality. For the purposes of this conversation, we'll focus on fractures with pain to a lesser degree, and we'll leave spinal cord compression and hypercalcemia out of the picture more so. There are various treatment modalities to um, help with these complications. Palliative radiotherapy assists in pain management, it can, and it can actually help up to 75% of treated patients in as little as one treatment session. Radionuclide therapy is, is a, uses radioisotopes administered directly into the metastases to um, reduce the metastasis size and is therefore more uh, prevalent in osteoblastic lesions, and it also assists in pain management. Orthopedic surgeries are used for function and mobility maintenance, as well as fracture management and prevention. Bone-targeted agents are more common for pain and bone density management and also assist with fracture prevention, and they will really be the focus of our conversation today, starting with the bisphosphonates, which I've represented here in the upper right corner as an orange star. When a patient, patient takes a bisphosphonate, the bisphosphonate is ultimately uptaken into the osteoclasts, and it induces apoptosis. As the osteoclasts are broken down, they no longer break down the bone, and therefore the lytic lesion resolves as osteoblasts are able to rebuild the bone. With time, growth factors will stop being produced, and so it has somewhat of an anti-tumor effect as well by reducing the size, the growth of the tumor. Um, and this is why they can also assist in pain management. The two most common bisphosphonates we'll use are zoledronic acid and pomidronate, which are typically dosed about every four weeks, with zoledronic acid having an option to extend to 12-week dosing intervals, which we'll discuss later. These can both be used in multiple myeloma and breast cancer, with an additional indication for castration-resistant prostate cancer in zoledronic acid. Renal dosing is used for both of these medications, and renal toxicity, as well as osteonecrosis of the jaw, are two major concerns. Denosumab is our only uh, RANK-L inhibitor uh, that is approved so far, and it acts by binding directly to RANK-L, and therefore inhibiting the activation of osteoclasts. With time, the osteoclast will no longer be activated to the same extent, and the body can maintain a he healthy equilibrium that will ultimately allow the bone to be rebuilt. Similarly, growth factors will stop being produced, and there is to some degree an anti-tumor effect against multiple myeloma cells here. And then with this medication, it's also dosed about every four weeks in multiple myeloma, breast cancer, and castration-resistant prostate cancer. It does not, however, require renal dosing, but two major side effects we'll talk about today are osteonecrosis of the jaw and rebound osteolysis for this medication. 
goals of pharmacotherapy are largely going to center today on the prevention of skeletal-related events, which we'll define as a composite endpoint of pathologic bone fractures, spinal cord compression, orthopedic surgical intervention, and the need for osseous palliative radiation. Some studies have also included hypercalcemia of malignancy as an additional point within this composite. However, more so often than not, we do not include that endpoint. Other um, goals of therapy include improving overall survival and progression-free survival, as well as managing symptomatic concerns like pain. I want to start with a baseline question here, just to gauge where everyone uh, stands with their recommendations for this disease state. Let's say we have a patient case, MJ, who is a 57-year-old female with stage 4 breast cancer that is metastasized to the bone. Which agent would you prefer to start for MJ to support her bone health, assuming she has no contraindications to bone-targeted therapies? And again, there is no perfect right answer here. I just want to see where everyone falls regarding what they might recommend. So it looks like most people are falling towards the spectrum of zoledronic acid, with a few tending to favor denosumab a little more so. Um, some have fallen even very far on the end of zoledronic acid. So we'll go ahead and discuss why certain agents might be preferred, starting with metastatic breast cancer. So the next two trials I'll present are specific to this patient population. Before 2003, the standard of therapy was pomidronate for patients with metastatic breast cancer to the bone. In 2003, however, Lee and colleagues did a study in the United Kingdom where they asked if zoledronic acid was non-inferior to pomidronate at reducing SRE incidence in these patients. They found that indeed SRE incidence was similar between the cohorts, but that there was slight favorability for zoledronic acid in patients who specifically had osteolytic lesions. They also found that zoledronic acid delayed the median time to SRE, even though incidence overall was pretty similar. A later study by Stopek and colleagues in 2010 asked whether denosumab was not inferior to zoledronic acid at reducing and delaying SREs. They found that denosumab delayed both first occurrences of SREs and all occurrences of SREs, and that osteonecrosis of the jaw rates were similar between the two patient cohorts, which was a very important safety endpoint. Some key considerations for these trials, for the Lee trial specifically, was that zoledronic acid may be somewhat less effective in patients who have non-lytic lesions or osteoblastic lesions. Stopek and colleagues reported similar adverse event rates, which was good. However, there was more cases of renal failure in the zoledronic acid group and more cases of hypocalcemia in the denosumab group, which are important considerations when thinking about an agent. Key takeaways, therefore, that denosumab, zoledronic acid, and even pomidronate are all appropriate recommendations, but that when affordable, denosumab may provide the most SRE benefit. Let's look at similar trials that were done for patients with castration-resistant prostate cancer. In 2002, Saad and colleagues conducted a superiority analysis of zoledronic acid against placebo because pomidronate was not the standard of care in this patient population at the time. They found that zoledronic acid reduced SRE incidence and delayed median time to first SRE. It was also associated with lower increases in pain scores, although all patients had increases in their pain scores, presumably as a result of the progression of their cancer. Fazazi and colleagues in 2011 asked whether denosumab was therefore non-inferior to zoledronic acid, and they found that denosumab did delay time to SRE and increased but it came at the expense of an increased risk for hypocalcemia 
although rates of osteonecrosis of the jaw were relatively similar, albeit quantitatively higher in the denosumab group. Considerations for these trials were that Saad and colleagues had a really low um, rate of patient completion in their trials. Only about a third of patients actually completed the study. So um, our ability to extrapolate long-term data may be limited from this study. Fazazi and colleagues, importantly, did not assess the difference in administration routes for patient preference, which is something that I thought was interesting for them to bring up because patients nearing the end of life might prefer to do uh, subcutaneous injections over going into infusion centers to receive zoledronic acid when they really want to be maximizing time at home. Key takeaways were that denosumab should be preferred in patients with uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer, but that zoledronic acid remains a perfectly acceptable alternative. So our recommendations now boil down to a couple of different um, flow diagrams I have here. And it's in solid organ tumors, it's based on the extent of the metastases. If a patient has multiple bone metastases, it's it, important to initiate denosumab, zoledronic acid, or pomidronate. And once a response is achieved, that every four-week dosing interval can be changed to every 12-week dosing intervals for zoledronic acid. Um, if a patient does not achieve a response, it's important to consider the more frequent dosing intervals, though. In a ligametastatic bone disease, or patients with just one uh, metastasis, they might not actually need therapy, especially when we want to weigh uh, the harms of potential therapy against their potential life expectancy. So if we decide that a patient does indeed need therapy, we start with zoledronic acid at the reduced dosing interval of every three months. And once a response is achieved, we can actually consider therapy interruption altogether after 24 months of treatment. If a disease progresses after therapy has been interrupted, however, we can resume therapy. Now, these studies are largely based on uh, breast cancer and castration-resistant prostate cancer data, yet they're applied to all patients with tumor metastases. Um, a study by Lee and colleagues looked beyond breast cancer and castration-resistant prostate cancer as a superiority analysis comparing zoledronic acid to placebo. They found that zoledronic acid reduced SRE incidence and delayed time to SRE. Most of the patients in this trial were actually had lung cancer, and as a result of that, the representation of patients with other cancers was limited, yet we still extrapolate data to these other patients. A review article in 2007 was not done to specifically look at certain types of cancer, but rather to look at the importance of managing disease in, patient, in any patients with tumor-related bone disease. They reviewed just over 3,000 patients and found an association between a patient's fracture development and an increased risk of death, indicating that we really want to make sure we're providing these patients with some kind of treatment option. Additionally, bone-targeted pharmacotherapeutics that we've discussed today have a relatively favorable tolerability profile, which we'll get into later. And because of that, the importance and benefit of treating patients with some kind of bone-targeted agent is uh, more beneficial than the risk associated with potential treatment. So that was the solid tumor side. Let's now get back to the liquid side with multiple myeloma. We start with a similar trial that was done in 2015 by San Filippo and colleagues, where they similarly asked whether zoledronic acid was this time superior to pomidronated extending five-year overall survival or delaying time to first SRE. They found that zoledronic acid did extend median five-year overall survival, even compared to active intervention pomidronate. 
Also, zoledronic acid quantitatively reduced SRE risk by as much as 25% in treated patients. Zoledronic acid did have a comparatively higher risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw, although this was not assessed for statistical significance, but it is a concern that should be discussed. A later study by Nupur and colleagues in 2018 asked whether denosumab was non-inferior to zoledronic acid in delaying SRE onset, and it found that denosumab was indeed non-inferior and that it had lower rates of renal toxicity. This, however, did come with a slightly increased risk for osteonecrosis of the jaw, although statistical significance was not met for that endpoint. So some limitations here were that San Filippo did not assess the uh, osteonecrosis of the jaw risk, which is an important uh, endpoint that we focus on in these patients. Um, also, this trial had a relatively long enrollment period, so treatment of the multiple myeloma might have actually changed throughout the duration of the trial, which could have impacted outcomes. Nupur and colleagues did not assess patients with renal failure, which was actually common among patients in all of these trials because these because um, bisphosphonates are contraindicated in renal failure. However, this was particularly important in uh, multiple myeloma patients because multiple myeloma predisposes patients to renal failure. So we were excluding an important population that we would expect to see in real life. Takeaways were that zoledronic acid actually still remains the NCCN category one recommendation alone, but denosumab is a suitable alternative based on evidence we're seeing here. So recommendations are that when a patient first develops multiple myeloma, they should be started on zoledronic acid, pomidronate, or denosumab. Once a response is achieved, therapy can be considered for interruption after 24 months of treatment. If they fail to achieve response, then they should still be continued on treatment, but it's reasonable to decrease the dosing interval to every three months. And if a disease progresses at that point, we can resume bone-targeted agents at the more frequent dosing intervals and reassess for response. Additional recommendations are calcium and vitamin D supplementation, even in patients who have healthy baseline levels. In all of the studies we've discussed so far today, patients were either required or recommended to be on both calcium and vitamin D supplementation. And we've applied this to our patients in typical settings as well. Non-pharmacological treatment options include weight-bearing exercises to strengthen the bones, as well as smoking cessation and alcohol intake reduction. So let's revisit our patient based on what we now know. MJ is a 57-year-old female with stage four breast cancer that is metastasized to the bone. Which agent would you prefer to start for MJ to support her bone health, assuming she has no contraindications? And it's okay in this case if you maybe want to keep your answer the same or consider switching it up. Okay, about the same number of responses have rolled in and it looks like denosumab is now slightly more preferred. Um, I think good reasons for this could be that it has shown to or decrease the incidence of SRE and delay median time to SRE. Um, zoledronic acid is still a perfectly acceptable option, and it's um, really appropriate for patients who uh, maybe need a lower cost option. Um, and then, let's see, and that's kind of really the two big things is weighing cost versus maybe renal toxicity and um, overall effectiveness. So let's start talking about some of our safety endpoints now. We've discussed osteonecrosis of the jaw, or ONJ, throughout the presentation. And this is a side effect that is relatively uncommon overall, but much more common in patients treated with bisphosphonates or rank L inhibitors in general. 
A key note here is that more than 90% of all osteonecrosis of the jaw patients are seen in medication use, specifically in oncology. So although we treat more patients um, with these agents for osteoporosis, it's more common to see this complication in oncology patients. Preventative measures are really um, focused on managing oral hygiene. And so this is going to be a good focus for patients before we get them started on therapy. We wanna make sure we have a pre-treatment dental assessment and provide any intervention before we start any agent. So if a patient has a mouth infection, that should be treated first. Or if they need a tooth extracted or repaired, that should be done prior to us starting any agents. Once therapy is started, we should have regular uh, dental appointments as well as open communication regarding oral health. Um, we should also educate patients on osteonecrosis of the jaw signs and symptoms, which can typically include pain, loose teeth, and then sometimes like infection or pus that develops in the mouth. Um, importantly, our preventative measures are really focused on localized management in the mouth. There's no systemic comorbidities listed here that increase a patient's risk for developing ONJ. Um, corticosteroid use has shown to increase ONJ likelihood, but it's not associated with any specific patient comorbidity. So let's look at a quick case of a review study that compared denosumab to zoledronic acid in three different trials with patients with breast cancer, castration-resistant prostate cancer, and multiple myeloma or non-breast, non-prostate cancers. Um, this was done to really kind of look at the risk-benefit of um, you know, starting bone-targeted agents in patients, knowing that osteonecrosis of the jaw was a risk. So we started by looking at all patients and then adjudicating them for positive cases of osteonecrosis of the jaw. The three trials altogether enrolled about 5,700 patients, and they only saw 89 positively adjudicated cases of osteonecrosis of the jaw, 37 in the zoledronic acid group, and 52 in the denosumab group. From this, there was an overall ONJ percentage of about 1.6%, but an overall SRE percentage of about 35.2%, even with treatment. So from this, we see that really reducing our risk of SRE as much as possible is going to provide greater benefit than this very low likelihood of developing ONJ. Additionally, ONJ can now be managed without surgical intervention. And localized risk factors can contribute to, or managing localized risk factors can contribute significantly to decreasing a patient's risk for developing ONJ. Um, again, corticosteroid use is the only non um, localized uh, treatment that or comorbidity that increases risk for ONJ. So let's get into some dosing frequency questions because. Uh, cancer therapy is improved with time, and with that, patients are more likely to be treated for a longer period of time. Um, with that comes an increased concern for adverse events, cost, and inconvenience to the patient. So there was a few trials done that sought to see whether or not uh, delaying or extending the dosing interval of zoledronic acid from every four weeks to every 12 weeks would still provide similar effectiveness. In doing so, we would be able to hopefully reduce a patient's exposure to bisphosphonates. The Himmelstein trial in 2017 looked at patients with multiple myeloma, breast cancer, and castration-resistant prostate cancer who had bone metastases, and they found that there was non-inferiority between the two different dosing trials. The Optimize 2 and Zoom trial looked specifically at patients with breast cancer, but they compared the same dosing intervals and found non-inferiority between the two different intervals. 
Some considerations for these trials are the fact that they really only observed effects for one to two years. Um, so really these were kind of, we were hoping to get longer term data out of these, but these were kind of shorter term, at least for now. Hopefully we can get some follow-up on those later. Study completion rates were as low as 44% for some of the studies, which um, is not necessarily unexpected in these patient populations, but it is something worth noting. Takeaways were that increasing zoledronic acid dosing intervals can limit bisphosphonate exposure without compromising efficacy in our patients. So let's review one more question, or another question. This is not the last one. Uh, SH is a 60-year-old male patient with metastatic bone disease secondary to castration-resistant prostate cancer. The patient's care team is planning on initiating zoledronic acid for supportive bone health. Which of the following patient characteristics would not predispose the patient to developing osteonecrosis of the jaw? Poor dentition, upcoming elective oral surgery, long-term corticosteroid use, or comorbid type 2 diabetes? So we have some answers rolling in. I would agree with the majority here that comorbid type 2 diabetes is going to be the option that does not predispose patients to ONJ. Poor dentition and having an upcoming elective oral surgery are both associated with increased ONJ rates, which is why we want to make sure we're counseling patients on good oral hygiene and managing any surgeries prior to therapy initiation. Long-term corticosteroid use is the one systemic risk factor for developing ONJ. And otherwise, there is no comorbidities that increase ONJ risk. So comorbid type 2 diabetes does not predispose patients to ONJ. And we'll now jump into our last safety uh, concern for the day, which is rebound osteolysis associated with denosumab discontinuation. I'm starting with a trial, the Freedom Trial and its extension trial, which took place over just about 10 years in patients who were on denosumab. Uh, when patients were being treated with denosumab, they found that their on-treatment event rate went down to 1.2 per 100 patient years, comparing that to placebo, which was 7.0 per 100 patient years. When a patient stopped denosumab, their event rate jumped all the way up to 7.1 events per 100 patient years within just seven months of discontinuing therapy, which was no statistically significantly different than placebo. Additionally, when patients did develop a fracture, they were more likely to develop multiple fractures in their bones than patients who developed or who received no treatment at all. Some additional studies here. The first one was a study by Ho Chen and colleagues, which was an observational trial in osteoporosis patients done in 2020. They found that the composite risk of any major fracture was greater in patients who delayed their therapy for any reason. Um, so patients had a 2.73% risk when they had on-time dosing, 3.22% when they delayed treatment by 4 to 12 weeks, or 4.24% if they delayed by more than 12 weeks. This was not statistically significant, but the trend suggests that there may be an increased risk, especially when um, putting this against information that we already had from other trials. A study by Triptoskolnik and colleagues and osteoporotic patients in 2020 also um, sought to determine whether or not patients who discontinued denosumab were at a greater risk for fractures. And they found that discontinuing denosumab increased fracture risk um, for any fracture vertebral fracture or multiple vertebral fractures in as little as just three months. Some considerations from these trials were that most data is in osteoporosis patients rather than oncology patients, which is our population of concern today. 
Additionally, discontinuation of the agents was based on fill history, so there could be some inaccuracies regarding when um, medications were actually stopped and therefore when we should follow up regarding an actual um, follow-up date. Takeaways were therefore that there is an association between denosumab discontinuation and an increased fracture risk, although this information is still being looked into further. And you might wonder why does stopping denosumab increase risk um, so much, especially compared to bisphosphonates. So there is a proposed mechanism. I didn't mention earlier that healthy bone has empty lacunae or kind of holes that run through the bone matrix. In healthy bone, the osteoblasts become trapped in the bone matrix lacunae as osteocytes. And these osteocytes help to maintain bone integrity so that the bone stays strong despite there being an actual matrix there. When denosumab is started, osteoclasts will inevitably die off, and the body really only needs to maintain a healthy equilibrium. It doesn't have to have osteoblasts outnumber the osteoclasts. So with time, osteoblast number will also dwindle, and this will result in fewer osteocytes that are being incorporated into the bone matrix lacunae. With these empty bone matrix lacunae, patient's bone integrity is compromised to some degree. Although with the denosumab still acting on the surface of the bone, we still expect that patients and have seen that patients are at a lower risk for fracture nonetheless. When denosumab is stopped, however, osteoclasts will eventually regrow and develop a lytic lesion on the surface of the bone. And when you couple that with the now empty bone matrix lacunae, a patient is at an acutely acutely increased risk for developing a bone fracture. So kind of a pre-question regarding how we might manage these patients. How would you manage a patient after denosumab discontinuation? Monitor without pharmacotherapeutic intervention, supportive care with calcium and vitamin D, initiation of intravenous zoledronic acid, or initiation of oral olendronate. So it looks like we have some mixed responses. Um, supportive care with calcium vitamin D or calcium and vitamin D, as well as intra initiation of intravenous zoledronic acid. Um, again, this is a pre-question, um, so we'll kind of get into what the current recommendations suggest we should do. Um, so let's look at a couple studies that evaluated anti-resorptive treatment with bisphosphonates after denosumab discontinuation. Um, these were all conducted in postmenopausal women and used various agents, including alendronate, zoledronic acid, and ibandronate. The first one was by Fremantle and colleagues in 2017, found that starting alendronate after denosumab discontinuation preserved bone mineral density compared to not starting any kind of agent at all. A study by Evans Graber and colleagues found that administering just one dose of zoledronic acid six months after stopping denosumab uh, preserved lumbar spine and total hip bone mineral density for as long as 2.5 years. Another study by Everidge Graber and colleagues found that bone mineral density increases were higher at the six to eight year mark, regardless of how long a patient had been on denosumab, whether it was five years or 2.5 years. And then a study by Kendler and colleagues found that transitioning from denosumab to alendronate had the most participants retain uh, bone mineral density in the lumbar spine, total hip, and femoral neck. Some considerations here are that this is not our target population of interest. Again, these were postmenopausal women, and the analyses looked at bone mineral density rather than skeletal-related event rates, which is what we've been focusing on throughout the presentation. 
Some takeaways, therefore, were that bone mineral density losses from stopping denosumab may be mitigated with follow-up bisphosphonate treatment. Current recommendations for rebound osteolysis are focused on administering either oral alendronate or intravenous oligronic acid six months after stopping denosumab. There's no current clear recommendation for either agent at the moment. Future areas of research based on what we've seen so far would look at denosumab duration. Intuitively, the longer we're on denosumab, the more empty bone matrix lacunae we're likely to develop, which might increase patients' risk for developing acute bone fractures after stopping therapy. Additionally, post-denosumab treatment options are still somewhat unclear. While, while oral alendronate and intravenous oligronic acid seem to be the best, more information is needed regarding which one may be better or whether or not supplementation alone would be appropriate. Additionally, treatment effects, um, such as using SREs as an endpoint rather than bone mineral density, has not been fully looked at, so we'd need further trials to find out what the real-world impact of stopping denosumab might be. Some key takeaways, then, are that mal malignancy-related bone disease is a serious and common complications for um, some of our oncology patients, um, and it can affect quality of life and increase morbidity and even, in some cases, mortality. Zoledronic acid and denosumab are the two most common agents that are used for preventing SREs in malignancy-related bone disease, although pomidronate has its utility in certain types of malignancy. In addition to managing side effects, care should be taken to mitigate safety concerns on therapy initiation, especially in the case of osteonecrosis of the jaw, as well as discontinuation in the case of rebound osteolysis for denosumab. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.